our series on the Holy Spirit of God, and we've been not intentionally um, preaching as if we're preaching through the book of Acts, but uh, the series kind of has us there at the moment, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 10, Acts the 10th chapter, and I'm going to begin to read, I'm going to read from verses 34 and 35 uh, to begin with, Acts 10, starting at verse 34. Here's the word of the Lord. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're amazed at your word, and we're amazed by you. God, that you would be so good as to fill sinners like us with your Holy Spirit. God, that you would work miracles. Father, that you would raise the dead. God, that you would bless us in this life and you would give us the promise of life everlasting. God, I ask that you do a foundational work in our lives and you do a foundational work in this church. Father, that you do something that will last until Jesus comes rock solid and immovable. God, I ask that you would displace wrong thinking that we may have had and you replace it with right thinking. God, I ask that you, by your grace, you give us ears to hear, give me a tongue to speak today, what it is that you have for us. Help us to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, the passage that I just read, <coughs> excuse me, is about the midway point of a larger story. And this story is, it's hard to say that there's one sort of linchpin story in the entire book of Acts, uh, because there are mile markers throughout the whole book, but this is certainly a linchpin story. Um, whenever the scriptures repeat something, in particular, when they repeat something once right after another, like Jesus, uh, for example, tells the parable of the sower, and then he turns around and he interprets it for his disciples. And the, and the gospel writer, whether Matthew or, or Luke, sees fit to, to include it again. He's driving a point home. He's repeating it for a purpose. And this is one of those stories. For one, the original events take up the bulk of chapter 10. And it, that's a long chapter in a long book. Right? Acts is the second longest book in the, in the New Testament. Luke is the longest. And so it's a long chapter and a long book. 
And the story really begins at the end of chapter 9. And then in chapter 11, a lot of it is repeated. This is a story that really bears reading, but we don't have time for me to read through the whole story and people kind of, in, in today's day and age, people get kind of ear-weary uh, ear listening to uh, the reading of a whole story. So I'm going to kind of touch on the highlights of this. The passage that I just read takes place in the uh, ancient coastal city in Israel of Caesarea. And Peter is there uh, at the end of a string of events, and he's speaking to a group that are not Jews, but they're Gentiles. And that is very much against uh, his upbringing and his understanding of what his duty and obligation was and what his devotion to God consisted of as a Jew. And so how did he end up in that place saying these particular words that he says truly I understand that God shows no partiality but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him so this this story begins and it's really there are a lot of other uh, sort of uh, characters to it but this begins at at the end of chapter 9 and and I really uh, I really want to tell the story that's really uh, not so much a uh, a sermon of, of points, although there's points I'm going to bring up, but I really want to tell the story. So the situation is this. Peter, uh, after we get the story of, of the persecution that started with the, with the martyrdom of Stephen and, and then uh, Saul of Tarsus is, is raging against the church, the church is scattered. Uh, we get the story that we talked about last week, and that is that Philip goes to Samaria Samaria receives the word of God. People are baptized in the Holy Spirit there. And after that story, we get a series of events of the Apostle Peter. And Peter is going here and there. He's preaching the gospel, and God is working remarkable miracles through him. And the last miracle takes him. Here's this situation where there was a, a young woman named Tabitha, and she was, uh, she was a very godly uh, disciple of the Lord, and she was very concerned for the poor, and uh, she died. And to make a long story short, because it's not the main point of what I'm saying today, he goes to where she is, and he raises her from the dead. He raises Tabitha from the dead. And this is on the coast uh, in, this, in this area. It's not in the Judean highlands, uh, Jerusalem, where, where Peter had sort of transplanted himself, and that's where the church was born, and that's where he's doing most of his ministry. It's not even in the Galilean area where he uh, was originally from, but this is along the coast. And just like anything else, is is the Middle East. It's hot. It's dry. You've got the Mediterranean there. And he's staying in the house of a man named Simon, who is a tanner. And now that little detail is repeated over and over again. And to us, it's like, oh, Simon the Tanner. I mean, you know, he's not Simon the innkeeper. He's not Simon the mechanic. He's, he's Simon the Tanner. Uh, what, okay, what does that mean uh, to any of us? Well, there's a specific reason, and I'll drive that point home in a moment. So, so Peter is there in the city of Joppa. Joppa is a small coastal town. The, its claim to fame from the Old Testament was 
That's where Jonah went when he was trying to flee from the voice of the Lord. So that's, it's this little, little port town, and uh, if you want to know where it is today, if you climb the hill in Joppa and look north, you look down along the, uh, the skyline of Tel Aviv, right? Tel Aviv, Israel, is Israel's largest, most populous city, even more so than Jerusalem. And it's, it's that coastal town. There's a beach right there. It's a beachfront. And that's where Joppa is. So Joppa is a little bit south of where Tel Aviv is now. Of course, Tel Aviv didn't exist then. It was just Joppa. About 40 miles north, as Peter is there uh, in the house of Simon the Tanner, uh, on the sea, he's at the beach, uh, 40 miles north is the city of Caesarea. Now, Caesarea uh, is ancient to us, but it was a newly minted coin at that time. It was a city that was absolutely fabricated out of nothing. There was a little watchtower there. And Herod the Great, that's the guy who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, was a great builder, and he built that city out of basically absolutely nothing. He, he, he dropped these huge uh, blocks of, uh, of rock and developed uh, uh, high-tech concrete that would harden underwater, if you can believe that. 2,000 years ago, they, they had that technology. And he, they, they floated barges out there, and they dropped these rocks, and they built a, a breakwater and created a, a, an artificial harbor, and he built a city. And he built that city in the image of Rome. So it was glistening white marble. They had a, uh, a big... Uh, stadium there what they called in that time a circus a hippodrome which would have been would, would have been racetrack they had a big theater there they had all the accoutrements of an ancient roman city and that was the seat of power for the romans when pilate uh was reigning in in israel he didn't live in jerusalem he only came to jerusalem for the festivals to kind of keep the peace uh, but he lived in Caesarea. That's where the seat of Roman power was. That's where they had the bulk of their troops. It was a pagan city in Israel. It was not a place where Jews would have liked to have been. Uh, they had, you know, temples. They had houses of prostitution there. They had all these uh, vain idols. Everything that a Jew is like, that's unclean. It was like a little slice of pagan Rome that was transplanted and put right there in Israel. And in that city was a Roman centurion. So you've got the whole thing set up, and you think, this guy has got to be a pagan. He's got to be godless. He's going to these temples. He's participating in Roman life. But that's absolutely, in this case, not what is going on. His name is Cornelius, and Cornelius is what in the ancient world they called a God-fearer. He was a Gentile that got connected with the, with the Jewish world and became completely convinced of its truth. And he begins to serve the God of Israel. He, be, he was such a devout man that even the Jews recognized him as devout. And he's a Roman centurion. He prays. He prays consistently. He gives alms to the poor. He's supportive of God's people. <coughs> but he lives there. He's stationed, just like a, a soldier can be stationed in different places. He's stationed in Caesarea. And so you've got, uh, you've got 
Peter down in Joppa on the coast, and 40 miles north on the coast is Caesarea, and that's where Cornelius is. And the story really begins with Cornelius. Cornelius is praying one day. He's seeking God, and an angel comes to him. And he's terrified. If an angel appeared to you, you'd be scared too, right? Makes your hair stand up on the back of your neck, and he just goes rigid. He's petrified seeing this angel. And the angel says to him, Your prayers have been remembered. Your alms have been recognized by God. So you need to send somebody down to Joppa and get the man named Simon Peter who's staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. And bring him in and he's going to talk to you. Now, there's a little sidebar here. Peter goes, and this is the end of the story, right? Peter goes, preaches the gospel to him, and they all get saved. Question is, why didn't the angel just preach the gospel to him right then? Uh, If I were in a class, like a professor, I'd wait until somebody answered the question. But I'm not going to do that because we're in church. The reason is, angels are not charged with preaching the gospel. You and I are charged with preaching the gospel. Just want to say, man, if this guy has got enough clarity, if he's devout enough and and favored enough for God to send an angel to him, what? Just, Just get it straight from heaven. The reason is, is angels, this is going to sound crazy to you, angels don't get it. Angels don't get it. Peter himself says in his epistle, Into these things, angels long to look. Angels don't understand redemption. This is what Pastor Joseph was talking about earlier. Be thrilled with redemption. Be excited. We are sitting on a spiritual gold mine in the redemption that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ. So amazing that angels who stand in the very presence of God are bewildered by it. They sing songs eternally, but there's a song they cannot sing. They cannot sing the song of the redeemed. That's our song. And the gospel is the message version of the song of the redeemed. This angel had one message. Go get somebody who can tell you the story. Because I'm not equipped for it. So, if you've got an angel that appears to you and and tells you, go get a guy named Peter, who's staying in the house of somebody named Simon, who's a tanner in Joppa, what are you going to do? Now, he got a bunch of guys. It's 40 miles, and we know how long it took them. Because by the time Peter gets there, right, so they they travel 40 miles, they get Peter, and they travel 40 miles back. They do 80 miles in four days. We know that because when Peter shows up and asks Cornelius what's going on, Cornelius says, four days ago I saw an angel. We know they couldn't have done that on foot that fast. So they took horses. So this means this centurion got horses, put men on horses, and sent them down there. And they were going a clippity-clop. I mean, they were moving to get down there. So here's the deal. He sends them off. Meanwhile, 
That's the first section of the story. That's verses 1 through 8. Then the next section is verses 9 through 23. Here's Peter, and he's staying with Simon the Tanner, and he's up on the roof. Obviously, it's a flat-roofed house, and he's hungry, and so they're making something for him to eat. And he falls into a trance, and he has a vision. And in the vision, he sees something like a sheet come down, and it's filled with all sorts of critters. And Jews aren't supposed to eat critters. They're supposed to eat ceremonially clean animals. So there are some critters in there that are creepy crawly things that are ceremonially unclean for the Jews. And God speaks to him and says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And it happens three times. And every time, Peter says, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Now let me tell you, there are two backstories that are going on here. Number one, he's in the house of Simon the, what's a tanner? A tanner is somebody who for the Jews lives constantly in a state of being ceremonially unclean. Because they're always skinning animals, there's the, there's the, they, they, they slaughter the animals and they eat the animals, but then he's going to turn their hides into leather right, or tents, or something like that, and he's always having to scrape those hides, and he's always having to deal with the blood and the gore of those slaughtered animals. And in Jewish law, a woman can never divorce her husband. The husband could always divorce the woman, but the woman can't divorce her husband under normal circumstances. In Jewish law, how many want me to camp out on that one for a while? Okay. Um, except in one circumstance. If a man courts and marries a woman and she ha he hasn't told her that he's a tanner, or he becomes a tanner, she can divorce him legally. Because she doesn't want to live in a state of perpetual ceremonial uncleanness. So here's the irony of this story. Peter is in the house of a man who is ceremonially unclean. And that guy is making him lunch. That's step one. Step two, this conversation where God tells his man to eat a certain food and the man answers God back. How many think it's probably not wise to answer God back. We do it all the time. That's a different story. We do it all the time, folks. All the time. But when you read it, you're like, the nerve of that guy. I can do it. But I, um, can you believe he did it? This happens in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 4. God tells Ezekiel he's doing this illustrated sermon. That's a different story. Doing this illustrated sermon. And he's got to cook his food. And he tells him to cook his food in a way that's ceremonially unclean. And Ezekiel answers God back. And says, nay, Lord, I've, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. And you know what God says? Okay, you're right. Can you believe it? God says, you can, you can cook it in a way that's ceremonial. That's how strong, that's how deep it ran in the Jewish mindset. 
to eat only what is ceremonially, ceremonially clean. So strong that you got the prophet take an issue. Pick, I got, God, I got a bone to pick with you. What, what is this? You have me eating something unclean. Peter does the same thing, but this time God says, no. Don't call unclean what God has called clean, what God has accepted. This happens three times, and then he comes out of his, chant, his trance, and he's, it says he's perplexed. He's perplexed. So if you've ever felt a prompting or a leading of the Lord that had you perplexed, you're in good company. Because God's ways are not our ways. And sometimes God will give you a very clear, powerful uh, encounter with him, but it takes time to work that out. That's normal. But that's the situation here. So while he's thinking about it, all of a sudden there, the doorbell rings, and it's, it's the gophers from, from Cornelius. Cor Cornelius sent his men to gopher for Peter. So they're his gophers. And so they're, they're down there, and he comes down and says, I'm the guy you're looking for. What, what do you want? And they say, this guy Cornelius, you know. So he goes with them. And that's, that's the way the story really unfolds, right? And that's how he goes. Now there are some key statements that are made in each of the phases of the story. And I want to touch on those briefly. In the first part of the story, where Cornelius has his vision, I want to look at verse 2. This, these aren't to come up on the screen. I'm just going to read them to you. It says, at Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known uh, as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. I mean, I, just to repeat, this is, this is like saying there was a man who was a devout uh, person who was hungry for God who lived in a seedy motel on the Las Vegas Strip. I mean, that, that's, that's the way it would ring in the ears of a Jew, right? That he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's Italian. I mean, he's a Roman. He's a centurion, and he's in, in Caesarea. But he's devout, and he's hungry for God. This is the first point that I want to get across to you. He's hungry. He seeks God. And I want to tell you, he had a lot less leverage with God than you and I have. But he was a God chaser. He was after God. And then this thing in the second phase where, uh, where Peter has the vision, it's, it's, that, it's that core that I just talked about that Peter is taking issue with the Lord and the Lord vetoes him and says, no, no, I'm not going to treat you like I treated Ezekiel. I'm not going to let you get away with that. This time I'm telling you, you've got you to gotta kill and, eat. and then this last point, when he actually, uh, when he actually goes, when Peter actually goes, uh, the key here is when Peter walks in, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with, with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So God is schooling Peter, and through Peter, he's schooling the entire 
church. And that's when he comes to the point where after Cornelius explains to him, he's like, okay, why did I come here? Cornelius is like, okay, and he retells the story. I was there, I was praying, and this angel showed up and told me uh, to go send for you, so we're all here. So Cornelius is there, Cornelius has got his family, Cornelius has got his friends. Clearly he's a leader, he's had an impact on all of them. And that's when Peter makes this statement that I read at the beginning of the message where he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Other translations say God is no respecter of persons. You know what it says literally in the Greek? God is not a face beholder. God doesn't regard the face. That's literally what it says. Everybody in this room has experienced at one point or another in your life that somebody lifted their eyes to you, looked on your face, and, and measured you up in that second, and you could tell in their eyes you didn't measure up. They were expecting somebody else. They're expecting something different. In one way or the other, they weighed you in the balance with a glance and found you wanting, and they discarded you. How many know what I'm talking about? Every human being has had that experience. They looked on your face, and you weren't enough. You weren't good enough for them. And this is what I want to tell you today. God doesn't regard the face. God is not a face beholder. God is no respecter of persons. That's a phrase that's got a little bit different uh, for us today. Because to say no respecter of persons makes it sound like God doesn't respect persons. Um, it means he doesn't, he doesn't discriminate between one person or another based on externals. That's the core of this passage. And then, as Peter is preaching the gospel, he launches into the whole thing. He says, okay, this is the story of Jesus, and he gives them the story of redemption. He gives them the core message of the gospel. God sent Jesus of Nazareth, anointed him, with the Holy Spirit and power, he went around doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him. And then he, and he goes on and he says they hung him on a tree. He rose from the dead. The prophets bear witness and so forth. Now get this, verses 44 and following, it says this, While Peter was still saying all these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. That's that same verb that we talked about last week from Acts chapter 8 where uh, Peter and uh, John go down to Samaria, and it says they'd, they'd received the word of God, they'd been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but it says the Holy Spirit had not fallen yet on any of them. That's, Luke is trying to express something that, 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 that escapes words, and that is there's something, there's an external empowerment that comes. There's a clothing. Jesus calls it being clothed with power from on high. And while Peter's still saying these things, man, Peter, he hasn't even gotten time to call the organist up to play just as I am. He hasn't gotten time for, for there to, to create the ambiance to do an altar call, you know, and do the whole thing. He hasn't done the whole thing. Everybody bow your head, shut your eyes. Somebody might give their heart to Jesus and they might be ashamed of it, so nobody look around. He hadn't done any of that. He hadn't even gotten to the altar call. He hadn't even got to point seven in the sermon yet. 
the Holy Spirit falls. And it says, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For they, and they asked him to remain for some days. I want to tell you, I, I want to tell you something. I am a statistic. I'm a statistic. I'm the result of something that happened starting in the 1960s. Started to manifest in the 1960s. It really started earlier. And that was that the Holy Spirit of God got poured out on the Roman Catholics. Can you believe it? And the Lutherans and the Presbyterians, the Holy Spirit got poured out. The reaction in the mainline Pentecostal denominations was much then as this is now with these believers. Because there were groups, <coughs> assemblies of God, and others that thought they had a monopoly on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But then all of a sudden, the winds began to blow. And the power of God began to move. And other people started to get filled with the Holy Spirit. Crazy. My dad went to a charismatic prayer meeting. Roman Catholic got filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, crazy manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Powerful, powerful stuff happened. I was at Notre Dame for four years. I was a student there. I, I ran into, I, I ran into priests, I'm just going to tell you. I ran into priests that, you know, you read about these abuse scandals that have happened. I ran into priests that I thought, I look them back, I think, well, they probably, they, they'd be candidates for that. I mean, they wore a collar, but they, they didn't have a pious bone in their body. There was nothing in them that indicated to me any life of faith, any devotion to the Lord, any gentleness at all. But I'll tell you, I ran into others that they were as godly and as prayerful and as hungry for Jesus as the most vibrant Pentecostal preacher that I've ever known. And some of those folks were just filled with the Spirit of God. I was influenced by that. Ultimately, I came over into a Pentecostal movement. But the birthplace of it was a moment like this. When somebody outside the box received. Now, I just want to bring out some basic points. And I want this to seep into us in the way we think. 
as, as individuals and as a church and how we minister to other people and how we receive people. The number one thing that I want to get across is God, when it comes to him pouring out his spirit and him moving and him giving his gifts, God is not a fault finder. God is not somebody who's always looking for faults. This is, I just wish if I could break any aspect of the mentality that gets into us, the group think that gets into us as a church. I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about the church. It's that God is a fault finder. That God is always up there. That when we go to him in prayer, some of you, the way you pray, and part of the reason why you don't pray as much as you would like to pray is that mentality is deep inside of you. Maybe it was your earthly father. Maybe it's some things in your past. But it's a mentality that gets into people that God is, is a fault finder. And that before he's going to talk to you about anything, he's going to parse through and he's going to find all these faults and defects in you. I want to tell you, this passage is full of faults. Peter was staying in the house of a man unclean. Cornelius was the wrong ethnicity, the wrong occupation, living in the wrong city. And God looked upon him. I want to tell you, I want to tell you, if God were a fault finder, none of us would have a snowball's chance on a day like this to make it through. God, Jesus Christ, died for you to be clean, and you are clean. He set you free. He, he, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding, so that you would always be received before the Father. Read the book of Hebrews. That's what that's about. That's about so you would always be received. Jesus died so that we, so that, that heart of God toward us could flow. God is not a fault finder. And different people, in their response to the Holy Spirit, they're like, man, it was so easy for him. They even get to the altar call, and they're all speaking in other tongues. How did that happen? I've heard of cases like that. I think I shared a couple of weeks ago a, a case where there's a storefront uh, church in a, in a rough area of Guayaquil, Ecuador, where, where I minister now and again, and, and this, they're playing the loud music. Pentecostals known for exuberant music, praise be to God. This loud music is playing, and this guy's stone drunk, tottering down the street. He's drawn in by that music, walks in, stands in the back of the church, swaying to and fro because of all the alcohol in the system. The Spirit of God hits him. He goes cold sober, gets saved, and gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, starts speaking in other tongues in one blow. How many think it's okay that God does that? If God will do that for that drunk, he'll do it for you. If God's crazy, God was, why did he do that? Because he's crazy in love with that godless drunk. Don't think that your sin and your faults are somehow more elite than those. They're just run-of-the-mill, same old dirty junk that Jesus died for. It's just the same stuff. God's not a fault finder. 
James 1.5 says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And God gives generously to all without reproach, meaning without finding fault. God's not a fault finder when it comes to asking for things. It's just not how he works. Second point follows on the heels. God favors the hungry and devout. I've said this many, many times. I want it to get deep in your spirit. That's not about being hungry and devout. Is not about earning his favor. It's about putting yourself in a position to receive. It's coming to the table. That's what it's about. You ever heard that old saying? You can, drink, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. You, it's just about positioning yourself. It's, it's something you have to provoke. I want to tell you, I just want to tell you, dare to be hungry for God. Dare to be hungry for the high things of God. Dare to set your sights high. Dare to pray for miracles. Dare to believe. Dare. Hey, God, you say, but, you know, I've had, I've had to wait for a while. Anybody read the story of Abraham? He had to wait for more than a while. But because he was willing to wait and dared to believe, we're all his children today through faith. Right? God favors the hungry and devout. That was Cornelius. Cornelius, Cornelius is just praying, seeking God. He, Cornelius, this Italian guy who moves to Israel and discovers the one true God, he thought he had already struck it rich. He thought he had already found all that there was. He, there wasn't any grumbling in Cornelius. There was joy, there was satisfaction, there was devotion, there was desire. And that put him in a position to receive a surprise from God. God wants to surprise us with good things. And the last thing I want to say is this. I want to ask Pastor Joseph to come. The team. God will not be put in a box. God will not be put in a box. Now that doesn't mean that God is lawless. That doesn't mean that God is not true to himself. What it means is God is true to the core motivations that drive him. To love a people like us. This is a very common thing for human beings to do. They see that God has done it this way, and they think that he's got to keep doing it this way. You know what the seven last words of every church are? We've never done it that way before. That's it. Once you start thinking and talking that way, that's those, that's, those are the seven last words of entire denominations. Whole movements die that way. Because they think that God's done it this way. Here's the beauty of Peter. In the midst of the legalism, these parameters that bound him, God had to shatter it all with, with, a, uh, with a vision. But they had had this pattern. The pattern was belief, repentance, baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Belief, repentance, baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit. You see it, you see it happens in... He announces it on the day of Pentecost. That's the way it was in Samaria. And now they get here. And man, he was moving through that. He was moving through that pattern. 
He was ready to start a denomination based on that one. All his denominational plans went right down the tubes when all these Gentiles all start speaking in other tongues. They're like, wow. We better get them, we got to get this bunch wet fast. Because the whole thing went out of order. God's not going to be put in a box. And so you have, a, you have an experience that's a little bit out of what we consider to be the norm. I, rem- I remember. I was a junior in college. I was, a, I was managing a dormitory on the campus. Keeping it clean and different groups would come in and rent the dorm during the summer. And the last week of May, this was the last week of May of, of 1984, um, a group came in, and it was a Catholic Charismatic Conference. And there was, there was a bunch of people, and these people were from, I think they are from Canada. And they came in, and I was talking to them about the Holy Spirit, and I expressed to them what happened and how the, my flesh burned when I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I began praying for this young man, encouraging him, and he began to speak in other tongues. And I said, Father, you got it. You just received. And he looked up at me so discouraged. He goes, but my flesh didn't tingle like you said yours did. <laughs> I said, Brother, it doesn't matter how it happens. It, hap- it just that it happens. My experience is going to be different than yours. Some people get it in the altar. Some people get it in their prayer closet at home. I talked last week, there's a Baptist preacher who's praising God in his car. He got it in his car. It happened a lot of different ways. But God is not finding fault with you. He's not finding fault with you. You know, Peter didn't do an altar call that day, and I'm not going to do an altar call today. I want you right where you are, just to draw near to the Lord. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? I want you to call out for more of God right where you are. If you've already been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I want you to pray that God would begin to use you to touch other people's lives. That you would be blessed to bless other people. You don't need a Peter or a Paul. My dad and my sister, just common people, laid hands on me. I got filled with the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your people. God, I thank you again that these truths, they're becoming part of us. Holy Spirit of God, we invite you to have your way on your terms, on your terms on your terms. Holy Spirit of God, we ask you, Lord, to help us get past ourselves. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to help us be worshipers like David was a worshiper in the book of Psalms. God, we ask you, Lord, to be prayer, to help us to be prayerful like Cornelius was prayerful. God, we ask you to help us to be open like Peter was open. We ask you to help us to be sacrificial like Paul was sacrificial. God, we ask you to help us 
be like Moses who said, show me your glory. God, we ask you to help us be like Abraham. Faith under siege held the line. Saw it through. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus.